a series on the book of Colossians called On Things Above um, based on the idea that though sometimes people think that people who are heavenly minded are of no earthly good, that's actually not true at all. That if we understand what it means to be heavenly minded the way Jesus told us to think about being heavenly minded, being heavenly minded is the way to be the most earthly good humanly possible. Um, there is sort of this bigotry that um, religious people just kind of have their head in the clouds, and that's just as true as that all secular people have their head in the sand. I mean, neither of that is very, neither statement is very charitable. The question is, what does it mean to be of earthly good, and what does it mean to be heavenly minded? And that's one of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, push the thing there, yeah. Sweet, did I do that or did you? Okay, so um, I talked the last couple of weeks if you want to hear about the whole issue of like, we don't actually agree on what earthly good is. You know, people say, well, you Christians are so heavenly minded, you know what earthly good. We don't even agree on what earthly good is. <laughs> and you can't even have that conversation until you have that conversation. Um, but I'm not going to spend time on that today. The second bigger question and the question that Colossians focuses on is, what does it even mean to be heavenly minded? Like, you've got to know what that means too. And in the first couple sermons in chapter one, I talked about the fact that what it means to be heavenly minded is to understand the gospel's truth, that is, reality, that God is God. He has made the reality in a certain way. We are alienated from him. In Christ, he has died for us to make us right with himself so that we could belong to him, and that that is profoundly gracious. So there's God's truth and there's God's grace. That is, God is enormously generous. He's a, he's a very generous being in person. And when you understand the truth of the gospel and the generosity and the graciousness of the gospel, it produces hope, which chapter one says is kept for us in heaven. That is, our heavenly mindedness is our mindfulness of the hope that is kept for us in heaven that we have right now in the king of heaven, because heavenly mindedness is Christ mindedness. Right? Chapter three starts this way. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And if that's true about us, if we understand the truth of the gospel and the generosity of God, and that produces a hope in us, it will make us the kind of people that can relate to the world based on truth rather than power. That is, no matter how people exert their power on us, or no matter how we would want to exert our power on them, we'll, people, we'll be people that are, that are directed by the truth, not by power. What's right What's good? What's beautiful? Doesn't matter how much you're going to give me incentives not to do that, I'm going to do it because I have faith. I trust God, and so I'm going to do, I'm going to act on the basis of truth, not on the basis of power. And also, I'm going to be generous, right? If I'm following, saved by, and drawn in by a God who is both truthful and generous, then the only way I can be maximally thankful and be who I was meant to be and live out the identity that I now have is for me to be truthful and generous. And so I'm going to be loving, right? <clears throat> so heavenly mindedness is Christ mindedness. That is, it's having a hope kept for us in heaven that comes from Christ mindedness. And so the question that I think would be helpful to look at today in this passage is how do you get that hope? How do you, and if you have a little bit of it, how do you make it bigger? Or to go back to a metaphor I used in a couple sermons ago, how do you make it weightier? How do you make it way enough in your life that it tips the scales of decisions so that you look at things very differently? And in this passage, it basically says that you get that hope. You get a bigger hope by fully embracing what this passage calls the mystery of Christ, which is in verses 124 to 25. So if you've got a Bible, 
Let's have a look at that. If you've got a pew Bible, it's 1832 is the page number. 1832. Colossians 1, 24. I should have told you this a minute ago. I is the Apostle Paul. You is the people in the church at Colossae, a city in a river valley in Turkey. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I, I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul in most of his letters doesn't use this word mystery. It's not a very common word. This is the highest concentration in any of his writings. But it's a very important idea utilized in this passage. So what, what does it mean? Why is he, why is he, why is he saying my whole job is to disclose what is true, make it plain, and then use a metaphor of mystery, which has built into it this idea of it's shrouded, it's dark, you don't see it all. It, it kind of feels contradictory, you know what I mean? Um, I think that w when you think about the idea of mystery a little more, one of the things that emerges is there's at least two kinds of mysteries, right? There's the, there's the whodunit, sort of Sherlock Holmes mystery, the this doesn't add up, what's going on here mystery, right? That's one mystery. And then there's the other mystery of things where we would normally use the word mysterious. That is, this is deeper than I thought it was. This is more complicated. It's more nuanced. There's more inner workings here. I don't really understand totally what's going on here. I kind of understand how it works, but I don't really understand why or how or what. See, those are both mysteries, right? They're very different things, right? Both you don't completely understand, right? Both may be able to be understood, but they're still different. And the biggest difference is that you approach them in very different ways, right? The first kind of mystery, you actually approach it by, by not deciding, by keeping your mind open and not making any commitments. You actually approach it by not believing, right? Because if it's a mystery, if it's a whodunit, you're pro somebody's intentionally deceiving you. You don't want to be particularly gullible, right? Whereas in the second kind of mystery, it's the sort of mystery that you have to go deeper into. In fact, you have to believe it to move further. There's very different responses to two very different kinds of mysteries. 
right? St. Anselm once said about the faith, he said, I believe it in order to understand it. There's a couple ways to to think about that. Um, One is that there's this passage in Proverbs 30 that says says this, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four things that I do not understand. So this would be that second kind of mystery, right? The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden, which is an interesting list. Um, (laughs) But see, those aren't the kind of things— now, all four of those things are kind of amazing. They're kind of like, I sort of know how that works, but I don't really under—I mean, it's kind of— it feels like there's more to it than that. Like, you can explain the the basic aerodynamics of of wind lift, right? But it still doesn't really— go, oh yeah, I understand the whole eagle thing, right? Or like slithering. Like, I have the zoo book from when I was nine years old that I read all of for how slithering actually works. And I get that it works, but when I actually see a snake, I go, how do you do that, dude? Like, I just—it doesn't look like it ought to work, especially the ones on water, right? But— you don't learn more about flying, floating, biology, or making love by denying that they happen. By disbelieving in them, right? You learn about them by investigative experience. And that last one, in the right context. Right? You learn about them by believing in them and trying to understand their mystery more completely by experiential investigation. Right? By science, if you like the same mentality of it. The second way to look at this kind of mystery is in terms of a story, right? Part of the the deal with this mystery is that it's working itself out. I mean, there's nothing particularly mysterious about a novel except for the fact that you don't know what happens if you haven't read it, right? So if you get, if you get a standard novel that isn't a mystery and you're on page four, what happens in pages five to the end is a mystery because you just don't know it. Right? It's not a logical problem. It's just the nature of a story. The old French word rom- that we get the word romance from, right? I remember reading a C.S. Lewis book where he referred to The Three Musketeers as a romance novel. And I was like, now that's my kind of romance novel. F- fencing, fighting, killing, riding horses, right? Very few women. Um, <clears throat> but the, the reason why in the English language romance, it used to refer to— all it means in the old French is a story told in the common tongue. That's all it means. It's a story. And there's a romance to the story because it draws you in emotionally. It's a romance, right? It draws you in emotionally. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's two people falling in love or whether it's somebody getting shot or not getting shot. You're being drawn in. It's a story in the common tongue. And at some point in the story, you hit that, you hit that, so like, you know, you read, you watch, so I had to go to Captain America by myself two weeks ago because it was going to go from the theater and I was going to Colorado and my wife couldn't go with me and so, but I wanted, you got to see superhero movies on the big screen, right? And so like in the first scene, right, like the heroes do heroic things and you're like, I like them, right? And the bad guy does something bad and you're, he kicks a baby or something and you're like, I don't like him, right? And so, I mean, this is how the story builds. And then things happen, right? And then, you know, it kind of, but at some point you kind of hit the climax and like something really big happens, right? And then it kind of, from there, you kind of know what's going to happen. Even if the action is still going, right? You still kind of know, okay, this is what's going to happen. In one sense, that's what the mystery of Christ is. It's a mystery 
that you've come over the main what's going to happen final hump. And so the story isn't actually over. That's why I only filled into here because, I, I mean, I kind of think of Christ's return as kind of a big, like, I mean, it's not, you still got another big climax hump in this story, but Jesus has told us what's going to happen. So that's why I put those little lines here. I'm like, we kind of know what's going to happen, but so here's, think about it this way. For thousands of years before Galileo put together his better telescope, people knew that there were stars, right? They watched stars. They, they looked at their patterns. They even predicted eclipses and stuff like that, right? But when Galileo put that thing together and you could look better at them, it completely transformed our relationship to the stars, right? You could look at them. You could say, oh, that's, that's definitely a planet. Like, I can see stuff on it, right? In that sense, when Christ comes in the Christian story, in the story of the universe, it's not the very end of the story, but it's the final climactic hump in which you realize the way it's going to resolve, and you have the interpretive principles for everything that happened before it. And so there is a mystery that's resolved, but that doesn't mean the mysteriousness of the story is over. And so somebody like the Apostle Paul can say, it was kept hidden for ages and now it's disclosed to the saints. And I'm still here to tell you about what is still the mystery of Christ. And you see, unless you can handle, unless you're willing to accept the tension of that, that it's a mystery that's been completely revealed and made known to the saints, and it's still a mystery, you can't get there from here. Because what will really grow the hope kept for us in heaven, heavenly mindedness that is Christ mindedness, is fully embracing the mystery of Christ. What he calls here the mystery of Christ. Fully embracing Christ and also fully embracing the mysteriness of Christ. You have to embrace the mysteriness of Christ too. Or you can't get to the place where he is in prison saying, I am glad to be in prison so that you can get there from here. You can't get there without embracing the mystery. Does that make sense? Okay. So I want to talk about, if, that, if you recognize that, then there's something that the Apostle Paul calls in this passage twice, the riches of the gospel. Um, and I'm just going to call it resources because some of us have an emotional problem with the word riches. But our heavenly hope comes from fully embracing the great resources of the mystery of Christ. Your heavenly hope, you'll either get it or it'll get bigger from practically really embracing fully the mystery of Christ. Okay? So I want to talk about <clears throat> two ways those resources of the mystery of Christ are there in how you think about them and believe them, okay? The first is, has to do with the spiritual resources. That is that the mystery of Christ offers great spiritual resources. Look at this passage in 127. To them, that is the saints from verse 26, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, okay? What's the mystery? The mystery isn't just Christ, right? This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? I've said this before, but I would argue that your whole eternal future is made by a single prop preposition. Christ in you. That is your hope of glory. That's your only hope of glory. 
the thing that Christians should want to go to heaven for isn't like gold streets and stuff. It's to experience God the way he really is, which the Bible refers to as his glory. Our hope of glory, to fully experience it in a future with God and to partially experience it in our present with God comes from the fact that God claims in the scriptures that part of the mystery of Christ is Christ in you, right? And so when, what the Bible says is that when we come to Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, two very important things happen. One, what the Bible calls justification and imputation. That is, all of our guilt is taken away and Christ's right standing is given to us. And secondly, what the Bible refers to, it doesn't use this word, but it uses lots of different metaphors that this word describes, is regeneration. That is, we are made alive again in a way, in our very spiritual being that we were dead to, and now we're regenerated. And those two things <clears throat> are great, but all they really do is make us suitable for the greater thing, which is we become a suitable habitat for the Spirit of God himself. God sends Christ to do his work so that we could be justified, that we were morally a suitable home, right? And to regenerate us so we are a spiritually suitable home so that God himself can be with us and in us. That is, the hope of glory is not just Christ, it is Christ in you. And here's the thing, guys. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. At all. Because, it, I mean, if we believed that, we really, there would be, we'd really feel like there's nothing that couldn't be done in and through us. Nothing. We would not be cynical people. Right? We would not feel like our genetics and our upbringing had us so trapped in these, like, actions and things that we'll never quite get over, and, oh, maybe I can come up with a coping mechanism. We, we wouldn't go, oh, you know, our relationship, we're a man and a woman, you know, we're not really even meant to get along. I mean, it's just like we wouldn't think like that. We just wouldn't, we wouldn't be like, well, I've been like this for 20 years, I'll be like this for 20 more. I've been like this for 80 years, I'll be like this for nine more. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was generous. That, that isn't how we would respond. What we would do is we would say, Christ is in me. Am I in a cell with iron bars of my genetics, my background experiences, my family upbringing, people oppressing me? Yes, but I am holding sticks of dynamite that will blow these things off their hinges. Are they, are these difficulties very difficult for us to get Absolutely. And without a hope of glory, without God himself dwelling in you, then you may never get over them. It's probably not your counselor's fault. But, but, if through Christ you have been justified, you've received his imputed given righteousness, and if you have made, been made a living habitation again for God's spirit through regeneration, God in his spirit, who is identical in personhood to who Christ is, God the Holy Spirit, is in you. That's this claim, and that is the claim, right? And here's the thing, right? Jesus said it, right? I mean, look, look at John 14, 14, right? He's leaving. He says, I'm gonna 
talk to the Father, and he's going to send you another helper, but not me, but another helper or counselor, right? And he'll be with you, how long? Forever, as long as you need him. The Spirit of Truth, which is a reference, is what he's calling the Holy Spirit in this case, right? And he says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. That is, they regard him as the first kind of mystery, right? Rather than the second kind of mystery, which he is. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you, right? Now here's the mystery, right? <laughs> how, does, how does that work? <laughs> right? How does that work? God is in—God is in me, right? And you're like, well, how could the infinitely large God be in your little— Like, yeah, well, God's infinite large just isn't spatial. It's an, it's an unfit metaphor, so that's a logical fallacy. I mean, you can go through a whole lot of philosophy about, like, why it's not likely— It doesn't seem like that makes sense. And none of the arguments really work philosophically. And then you can be like, well, he's just sort of there. <laughs> and people will be like, well, I had this experience. And I, like, like, in the seat of my conscience, I had this, like— overwhelming drive to be like, I need to do the right thing, and I knew what the right thing was, and I did it, and that was God in me. And, and, and you to tell your non-Christian friend, you'll be like, oh, you just, you know, you just want to do the right thing, right? I mean, it all can be explained away. It's, it's not self-interpreting. It's, it's mysterious. Exactly how this all goes, most Christians, if somebody's, if you're in this room and you're a believer and you've been doing that for a while, you probably could be like, okay, here's a bunch of things that happened to me, or a bunch of experiences, or here's how I function, and like, this is, I think this is the Holy Spirit working in me. And it, it's not going to be clean, your explanation, is it? Not if you're explaining it to some, like, engineer, right? Well, how does that, is that, how do you know that was that? And would you, you wouldn't be able to be like, oh, it's that. The experiences have to be combined with faith to be interpreted. You have to believe that Christ is in you. He is the hope of glory. That's why it's in the Bible. If you could just derive it from your experience, if it was all self-interpreting, we wouldn't need a Bible, right? God, for some reason, believed we needed revelation, that he needed to speak and show himself so that we could interpret the mysterious experiences that we have. That's why Christianity is both word-based and spirit-based, that it's both rational and experiential. God gives us what we need so that we can interpret what we experience. The second thing to deal with is the mystery of Christ that is offered in great knowledge resources. This comes up a couple of times in this passage and in the one before it. So in chapter 2, he says this, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches. So even the unity and the encouragement has another end, right? So that they may have the full riches—see that word riches? Of complete understanding— in order that—so the complete understanding, what does it precede? In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. That is, in order to know Christ on a certain level, it has to be preceded by a certain kind of full riches of complete understanding. In order that you could really know the mystery of God that is Christ. Right? So it says, in whom— we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You saw the same thing in, um, 
in verse—this is what we just read. In chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right? One of the things that I think is helpful, like, you know, when you live in a—I don't know if you had this experience when you're trying to talk to somebody about Jesus, where you can tell one of the things that they're concerned about is that you think you know more than somebody can know. Have you had this experience? Where you're like, look, I I believe in Jesus, and Jesus is real. And they're like, how can you—I mean, there's a sense of, like, how—you can't really know that much, because that's kind of one of the sentiments of our age, right? That you can't—there's lots of things you can't really know. And when you start to say that you know religious things, that just seems preposterous to people. And one of the things that this really ought to help us with is the fact that essentially the claim in this passage is that you know Jesus and you do not know Jesus, right? I mean, that's what you can basically say from this passage pretty clearly, is that um, if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus and Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you know Jesus and you do not know Jesus. And both of those statements are completely true at the same time. Right? You, you know Jesus in that you've put your trust in him. You've received what he's done on your behalf. You know some limited amount about him that you respond to. You have some amount of experience in which you've interacted with him in the mystical, spiritual way we talked about in the first point. But you and I have no clue how far down this rabbit trail goes, do we? we we've, not, we've not hit any borders. Right? We've not, we've not searched anything, like anything at all out entirely. Every time, every time I go to the Bible, there's something new, something else, something I didn't think about. And it may, it doesn't necessarily prove everything I knew wrong before, but it adjusts a lot of things. And it puts new caveats in and it takes it in new directions and expands it even further into it. And off it goes. I, I know Christ and I don't. And so one of the th- reasons I think this is, that's helpful is if you, you and I are able to recognize there are some things we know on the basis of Revelation, on the basis of the cross, we know them. And that that is a window into a relationship of the Christ who is also mysterious that we search out and 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 search out. That there are some things that we know that are very concrete. And there are a lot of things we do not know. Which creates growth potential for us, humility for us, a certain amount of believability for the people we share the gospel with, and still a relative certainty and directness in sharing what is necessary to become a Christian, to be saved, to know Christ, to be justified and regenerate so that Christ can live in us and we can find out how far this mystery goes. Sorry. And what I, what I think is important to see is, is that for that, Paul was willing to rot in jail many times. Right? He says in, at the beginning of this passage, it says at the end of verse 23 in the passage the Lord preached that week, <clears throat> in this gospel, I've become a servant. And his very next line is, and now I rejoice in what I had to suffer for you, and I fill up in my physical body what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. You see what he's saying? He's saying, um, I've been rotting in prison. Epaphras got thrown in prison. 
There's all kinds of things we've suffered through so that you could know the mystery of Christ. And we are not mad about any of that. In fact, we are happy about it. We, we are sitting in this cell, freezing half to death, or sweating half to death, loving the fact that we have the privilege of trying to make it possible for you to know the mystery of Christ. That's what he's saying. And then in chapter 2, he makes the same basic argument again. He said, I, and here's the thing, he, he doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal. He doesn't really say that. He says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those that lay out to see it and for all who have not met me personally. You know, on one level, you could read that and you'd be like, okay, do you have some kind of celebrity complex that you're like, you know, I want everybody to know how much I'm doing for them even if they don't even know who I am, right? But that's not the point. His point is that when he, when he goes through these things, he's doing what needs to be done so that the kind of suffering that Jesus couldn't complete is done. You see, in verse 24 when he says what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, he's not talking about the atonement. He's talking about the fact that the, the message of Jesus always went out through his suffering. And now, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he sent his spirit into people who had Christ in them, the hope of glory, now he sent people willing to do that suffering, bringing of the message to all parts of the world, right? And he's glad about that, and he wants them to know that, because when they know it and when they understand it, they under they'll begin to understand, or they might wake up to something of the value of the riches of the mystery of Christ because we're not usually awake to it. And one of Paul's greatest fears is that you would go through your life, and those of you who are Christians, that you would go through your Christian life believing in Jesus and essentially asleep to the expansive greatness of the glorious riches that are actually really available in Christ who is God's mystery. That's fear. And he's saying, I want you to know, I want you to know that I'm in prison for you. I want you to know that. I want you to know, and I want you to know I'm happy about it, but that it's hard, and that I'm constantly doing this, and I'm not going to give up until they kill me. And I want you to think about that, because I want you to think about what it costs to get this to you. Right? And you should think about that. I mean, this is 2,000 years later. I mean, Paul rotted in prison. They tortured 80-year-old bishops alive to give up where they'd hidden the written scriptures. And there's, there's narratives of bishops who were killed alive by Roman soldiers so that they could get their hands on their Bibles so they could burn the Bible and get rid of it. And they wouldn't give it up so that you could have a Bible today that's, that's completely accurate to the original. And there have been people through every age who died for the gospel, who were willing to be outcasts from their family, there are people in every age who have gone to new places. There was a time when, when people sent out missionaries, they thought, of the, they thought of America. John Wesley came here as a missionary, right? So many of the early people who came to the United States came here as missionaries. There are people, there's a road near Jackson, Mississippi, with a plaque on it that said, in the middle 1800s, there were only three people who used this road. There were shippers, there were the bandits that stole from those shippers and Methodist circuit riders, <laughs> preachers, who tended to carry a Bible and a gun. 
because they would go everywhere under any conditions. The average um, Methodist circuit rider in the 1700s died within five years of taking his charge, usually from exposure or being killed by somebody and so on. For 2,000 years. And right now, right? I mean, there are people right now watching our kids so that we can be here. There are people who have given very generously so that we can be in this building. There are pe- I mean, there's always people giving and being sacrificial and offering and being generous. I mean, just think of the last person who got in your faith and told you the tr- face and told you the truth. They were paying a cost to do that. It was a risk. Right? If they did it lovingly, they did it out of love. There are people who have stuck with us through years of our own stupidity and idiocy. Out of their own personal generosity. So that we could have a chance to hear what we need to hear. There are always people suffering for you. So that you could move forward. So that you could know the mystery. So that you could know the gospel. And you will be able to have some comfort that you understand something of the mystery of Christ when you feel that way. Listen, the people who volunteer around here are not people who have too much time on their hands. They're not people who just needed to spend another couple hours with kids. They're not, the people who give aren't people who just like, they're like, oh, there's just money laying around everywhere. I'm going to give it. That's just not reality. The reality is is that everybody that serves, everybody that gives, everybody that goes, and everybody that does, does because they feel like Paul. They feel like they are glad to do something with and to their own body to subject themselves to some kind of deprivation so that they can be generous with somebody else. That their deprivation would create some kind of spiritual plenty for somebody else. That if they fill up in their body the suffering, it will be good for Christ's body, that is the church. That's why people serve. That's why you should serve, and that's why people serve you. And if you realize why people serve you, it might have the same effect that Paul wanted to have, which is you might go, they do a lot to serve me. They must believe that this is really important, and there's a lot more to it than just the little bits, I think, I think. And what our hope is, is the same thing Paul's hope is, that that would happen in you, right? There's one more thing I think it's important to look at in this passage. And that is in this one sentence where when you read it, it just sounds like a nice flowery sentence, but we don't actually know what it means, okay? And that's this one. So he says this in the passage above. I've become its servant, that's the servant of the gospel, by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And then this. To them, that is, the saints— God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That makes perfect sense, right? No, it doesn't. Right? Why is that in there? Right? Because, see, here's what most people do. They'll read it, and they'll say, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is, that God chose to make known the glorious riches of his mystery among the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could know that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's not what the sentence is saying. Right? What the sentence is saying is, God wanted to reveal to them, that is, the saints, right? To the saints, that is anybody who believes in Jesus, who's in the the living church, God has chosen to make known 
the glorious riches of this mystery to the saints, not the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So why stick in among the Gentiles? I mean, this is not like one of my blog posts on Engage and Equip where like I have voice dictation software and it's blah, 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 blah of 50,000 words, right? I mean, this guy's in a jail cell with a feather writing on like woven together reeds. You you don't throw away words. Why does he write among the Gentiles? Is it just redundant? The Colossians are Gentiles. They are the saints. And so he's revealing it among the Gentiles, so it's just redundant? It's not. It's not that. As far as I can tell, it's this. It's that part of God revealing the worth of the riches of his glory is that it has taken hold and transformed the lives of people least likely to believe it. So, if you look at the book of Acts, for example, when the whole Jesus thing starts breaking out, Paul's like, Jesus is awesome! And the Romans get involved, and they're like, what are you guys talking about? There's this big riot in the city. They're like, he's like, Jesus is the Messiah! And, and the Romans are like, guys, take it to the synagogue. Like, this is an intramural Jewish argument. We don't care about this, right? Like, you can argue all you want about the, the Jesus figure thing, Messiah, Torah, Hebrew, whatever, but like, don't make Ephesus a mess because you guys want to argue about this, okay? And as you go through, you see this when Paul goes in front of some of the Romans, and he's like, you should believe in Jesus, and they're kind of like, you're a Jew. We don't care about this. Even in later, after, um, you know, 70 years later, you know, Pliny the Younger is writing Trajan. He's like, yeah, there's some Jewish squabble about some guy named Jesus, and I don't really know what it's about, but man, it's creating problems, right? The idea is, is that why would anybody pay attention to this outside of Judaism? Right? You, you, I mean, like, there's certain American ideals that, like, Americans, you know, Americans fight about, but, like, you go over to India, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not a thing here, right? But you see, what he's saying is he's saying part of the glory of the worth of the gospel is that there's all these peoples around the Jews that this shouldn't have connected with, right? This is the end of our story. This is the Jewish Messiah. This is the end of our Old Testament story. Why would Turkish Greeks care about this? Right? Why wouldn't, why would Macedonians and Achaeans and Romans, why would, why would any of them take any of this seriously? But what they found was is that these Gentiles had believed in the gospel and they had had Christ come into them and it had become a hope of glory and it had changed their lives. It had made them truth people and generous people. Their towns are changing. Their families are changing. Their lives are changing. And what he's saying is because it happened among the Gentiles, you should take note of that. It is so powerful The riches are so much a true spiritual wealth. The mystery of Christ is so potent that the people you do not believe will believe it. Will. And listen, you can take out out, uh, Macedonian or Gentile. You can put in anything else you want, and you can put in Madisonian. This is another one of those things we don't believe. Romans 1 says, For the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes it, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. 
The end of the week before last, the Power and Love Conference was here. I'm sure oh, there weren't very many of us. From this church here, a few of us, this place was packed to the rafters with charismatic evangelicals who were going out and just talking to people and praying for them. They baptized 10 people one of the evenings they were here. Those Madisonians who would never accept Jesus. I was in, um, I was with a friend in Colorado this week, and we were swapping ministry stories, and I was actually really surprised at how many life change stories I had to share from just the four years that I've been here at High Point. There's piles of them. But he was talking about, he's like, yeah, there's this guy in my church who's on the elder track now. He's like, I met him less than a year ago. His wife came in, and she's like, I'm divorcing this guy. And I just want to meet and see what happens, right? So he did his homework on this guy. It, he's a veterinarian. He's very, very wealthy. He's also a businessman, very well known in the valley that they're in. And they come in and they're talking and it's not really going anywhere. He said, listen, why have you come? Right? There's a lot of us pastors who say this in counseling sessions. Why did you come in here? Right? Do you just want my blessing for your divorce? Or, or, or did you come here because on some level you do want to work it out? Which is it? Right? And the guy's like, well, I don't know what she wants from me. And there's a little, right? right? And he'd done his homework on him. He knew exactly what this guy was about. And he said, listen, this is why she's going to divorce you. Because you're a jerk. You're controlling. You're mean. You're insufferable. You think that because you're successful, you don't have to be a decent person, and you do whatever you want, and you're, you treat her like garbage, and she's going to divorce you because you are a jerk. And of course, he did the outrage comeback, right? That, I mean, if you're going to do the outrage comeback, you might as well just apologize, okay? But he did the like, how dare you die? I'm a respected businessman in this community, and I'm successful, and she's benefited from all my success in that whole bit. She did, he did a whole bit. And he goes, yeah, you're successful, you're respected, blah, 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 you're a jerk. Okay? And she, she ought to hate you more than she does. And she's going to leave you, and she should. Okay? And he kind of like got angry, kind of, it didn't go well from there. And then they left, right? Oh, don't no, wait. Before he left, he said, listen. My friend said, listen. Nothing is going to fix this except for one thing. You have got to submit your will to Christ. That's it. And then maybe we'll see. But you have to submit your will to Christ's will. You have to give up, surrender to Jesus, and then maybe something can happen. He'll change you, and then that different new you, we might be able to do something with. So they, they kind of ended up, and he'd left, and you know, whatever. He calls him up two, three days later. Hey! All right, what do I have to do? <laughs> comes, comes back in. They talk for a little while. He said they talked for about— 20 minutes, and all he did was just explain the same thing again. Listen, you have to submit your will to Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that can happen. He's God. You are not God. And you've got to take your will, and you've got to give it to him, and you've got to submit to him. And he said about 15 minutes into that, the guy was sort of laying on the floor sobbing. Finally he goes, all right, just tell me what I have to do. He's like, well, you just pray, and you say something like, I'm wrong about most everything, and— Jesus, please help me, and I accept you, and let's figure out what you leading me looks like, and I submit my will to you, right? So this guy prays that, and um, they're in church the next week, doesn't hear from him. They're in church the next week, doesn't hear from him. Church the next week, they seem they feel like they're laughing with each other, you know? He's like, what the heck? So he finally's like, okay, what's going on, right? How are you, how are you doing okay? And they're like, and she's like, he's actually really nice now. She's like this, it's—and they're talking about— 
making love and like how they're going on date. And, and it's like, and so then um, this, this, they have this big marriage retreat in that area of Colorado that's like brutal. Like you go and it's like four days, counselors like tear your life apart. Just like everything about, it's just, it's brutal. And then it's like your marriage and they're like brutal. And the whole idea is that you come out the other side a little healthier. It's like a really difficult operation. And so my friend goes up to this guy, he says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to take your wife to this marriage retreat. They, they have an opening. They never have openings. They have an opening for one couple. I want you to go to this thing. He's like, and he, so he tells him about it. And the guy's like, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, right? He's like, I want you to take your wife to it. He goes, okay. He's like, and it's $5,200. He goes, okay. <laughs> Writes out the check. I mean, this is a guy that hated his wife's guts three weeks earlier. Now he's willing to cut a check for $5,200 to go to a retreat where they're going to tell him he's an absolute moron on every level, right? Just because he's not in charge anymore. This is a guy that has been like that for 30 years of his adult life. He's been a jerk. Everybody knew it. And one day, somebody said, you're not God, Jesus is, you need to submit your will to him, and he will come into your life, and he will change you. When you're not God anymore, you'll be different. And it happened because it always happens. You and I have got to believe that the riches of the glory of the power of the gospel Revealed among the Gentiles, that is, among the people who would not believe it, that they did and are and do believe it, they can believe it today. Your neighbors, my neighbors, our family members, these people who you do not believe will ever take this seriously, they will, some of them will, God will call some of them. And when you say you've got to submit your will to Jesus, you need to believe the gospel, not celebrate these idols. When you try to share however you can, it will do something. The gospel is the power of God. It has spiritual resources and it has knowledge resources. And they come together in this message about Jesus. And it is the mystery of God, namely Christ. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is, it is the treasure trove of all of the riches of God. And it is that when you not only accept Christ to become a Christian, but when you embrace the mystery of Christ— one that you will be searching out the rest of your life. You have no idea where it goes, and you have no idea what it's going to do to you. You just have the word of the one who is truthful and generous, who has done all of this to give you a hope kept for you in heaven. Fully embrace the mystery of Christ right now. Fully embrace it. And use the song we close with to help do that. Let's pray. Father, we lift up ourselves to you and we recognize that we need, we just, we need to fully embrace you in your full mystery. We want, we want to read every page of the story to the very end. We want to know who you are from first to last. We want to search out everything that we can search out. We want to have what we think rearranged and rearranged and rearranged. And we want, we want the benefits. <laughs> we want all those great things that 
the scriptures talk about that come when, when we want that, when we seek that. We want to have a faith that's disciplined and firm. We don't want to be pulled around by fine-sounding arguments. We want to love and respect the people who suffer and sacrifice to serve us. But most of all, we want to actually believe that Christ is in us. He is our hope of glory. He can do anything in us. And that your gospel is so rich and so great that it can change the minds and hearts of anyone. Will you help us to believe those two impossible things for us to believe? Come Holy Spirit and please help us. Be with us and in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.